Today, I'm sitting down with Leanne Shared, who's joining me on the podcast today. Um, you guys are so lucky you get a treat. It's Leanne and Leanne. So Leanne's going to be talking about telepractice, the fundamentals and advantages. Leanne founded a teletherapy private practice. So she's coming on to talk a little bit about that, about starting that company, um, the idea behind it and how it's working out. And she's sharing with us the things that they've learned along the way, like navigating telepractice guidelines, talking about state licensure, um, HIPAA compliance, insurance considerations, documentation considerations, um, thinking about the appropriate populations uh, for telepractice, and then, of course, the good parts, like the benefits, um, why telepractice could be a great solution in targeting functional goals, working alongside caregivers. Um, it's just a little snippet of what Leanne's going to go over with us today. So yeah, I'm really excited. This was a really fun chat, and I'm super happy to share it with you guys. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, and now let's hear a little bit more from Leanne and Leanne. Leanne and Leanne. Leanne and Leanne. Leanne and Leanne. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. It has to be a scary feeling, especially for a seven-year-old, to not be able to catch their breath, even for a few seconds. This is what happens when someone, and it could be children or adults, has vocal cord dysfunction. Now, VCD sounds like a very general term, but it has some really specific symptoms, and we, speech-language pathologists, need to be aware of them and what to do to help these individuals in distress. We have an expert in the house on this topic. Grab your pen and paper and get ready for a fascinating discussion. Here we go. Jayanti Ray, PhD, CCC, SLP, is one of the most knowledgeable and educated ladies I know. She earned her degrees, including her PhD, in India in the late 1990s, then came to the United States where she joined the faculty as an assistant professor at Washington State University and was there for five years. She then moved to Southeast Missouri State University where she's a full professor and teaches currently teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in the Department of Communication Disorders. Now, notably at SMSU, she was awarded the Outstanding Teacher Award in 2019 and the Outstanding Researcher Award in 2013, 2015, and 2017. She says that her teaching and her research interests are varied, and I would agree with that. She's interested in voice disorders, which is what she's talking about with us today, oral myofunctional disorders, cognitive impairments, and neurogenic speech disorders. She's presented numerous papers at the local, state, national, and international conferences on a variety of topics. Very importantly, prior to joining academia, she worked as a speech-language pathologist and consultant in pediatric as well as adult home health, skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, and private practice. She's done therapy. And I think that is so very important for university professors. So welcome to the speech link, Jayanti. Thank you so much, Shar, for having me today. I am very much honored and looking forward to the entire speaking event. Thank you again. Thank you. Now you are talking with us about a really interesting topic that I haven't heard too much about. 
but wow, it seems important. Vocal cord dysfunction. Seems like that could go any different direction, but what exactly is that? Well, when you hear about vocal cord dysfunction, we tend to think about our vocal folds. Now, what is wrong with the vocal folds? Well, vocal folds to us mean that we are always thinking about our voice, but it is not about so much voice, but it is a respiratory condition characterized by paradoxical closure of the vocal folds during inspiration. So it means when we are breathing, we keep our vocal folds in an abducted position, Mm -hmm. but air can pass through easily without any resistance or with least resistance. But that way we get our oxygen we need. But in BCD or vocal cord dysfunction, it is very different. The vocal folds try to close when you're trying to breathe in. And that means there's a little struggle getting the air into the passage. And and as a result, children might show, or even adults, they might show some sort of noisy breathing or that's called strider. Or sometimes they, they would have so much of discomfort that uh, they might think that they're suffocated or they're having some kind of strange feeling, some tightness in their throat, some tightness in the chest, and so on. Oh, my gosh. That's scary. That is scary. (laughs) That is very scary. Now, you said paradoxical vocal folds, something Mm -hmm. or other. You know, I suppose I should know what that is, but I don't. What does that mean? Oh, paradoxical closure of the vocal folds means, um, as I explained, like when you need to breathe in, your vocal folds, the two folds should be far apart, like in an abducted position to let the air flow through. But when you are actually using the vocal folds for voice, they're supposed to kind of come close to the center and start the motion and they get into vibration and we are able to produce our voice. But when for breathing purposes, the vocal folds are supposed to stay out from the midline. And that's why it is called paradoxical closure because instead of keeping themselves open, they just close down at the time of breathing. Ah, so it's just basically doing the opposite. So it's a paradox. I'm doing the opposite. Okay. There you go. There you ah, go. Ah, it's a paradox. Okay. All right. Well, that's a fancy name. Why don't they just say that? <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, I know. They should. <laughs> All right. So it's basically during breathing then when you're trying to breathe in. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Tell me some more of the signs and symptoms so that if I see somebody that has it, then I can kind of recognize that. So obviously, they're going to be in distress. Are they wheezing or are they trying? What happens? And as you're talking about this, are there different levels or does it just close or are they close partially? Is there like a variation of closures? Yeah, absolutely. I can talk about that. So there are a variety of signs and symptoms that we see due to this condition. So first thing to note is that, yes, as you mentioned, there is a strider, like noisy breathing. So typically, yeah, children or adults, whoever gets into this episode, they find it very difficult to get out of it. They feel like they are suffocating. They can't get enough uh, air to breathe in and they always feel that struggling to keep the airway open but nothing they can do about it except that's wait it out so now the other things that happens over here is that the vocal folds are not closing all the way but there is a partial uh, opening in the vocal folds 
it's like a slight chink you see in the posterior part of our vocal folds. The space between the vocal folds is known as the glottis. And if you go to the posterior part, you see a tiny little space through which air passes through. But imagine you need the entire vocal folds to stretch out and you're only using that partially created window to breathe in. And that itself speaks of all this trouble and struggle that goes on with this BCD. And due to this, there's a, some periods of breathlessness. And that's a time like students uh, in classes and uh, students playing out in the field um, and if they're planning on getting some physical activities, they find it very difficult to continue with their activities because there are some breathlessness periods where they really cannot keep up with the oxygen demands. And because of this continuous struggle, then they end up showing some symptoms of anxiety and sometimes they are really uncomfortable and really don't know what's happening. So again, it's kind of those signs and symptoms one has to be cognizant of. But sometimes they also show coughing and this is kind of coughing to keep the vocal folds open. So when they feel like they can breathe in, they have to do something to the vocal folds. So they, in order to make sure that the vocal folds kind of open at least after this cough, so they try to cough all the time. So it becomes like um, cough behavior, which persists for a long, long time, even though there's nothing coming out of their airway, but they're still coughing. And because it's just to make sure that their vocal folds are moving somehow, because what happens in cough is that we adduct our vocal folds very quickly. It's a tight closure. Then all of a sudden the vocal folds open because that's what happens in cough. So pretty much in ATC, younger children having this VCD, um, we tend to find out that they cough. As, it's kind of a nice little um, strategy to keep their vocal folds open. Yeah. And uh, of course, along with the cough, you could also hear some strider, that's the noisy breathing. And the episode, yeah, it lasts for about a few minutes. Yeah. And I've seen children where the episodes last about a few seconds and they are just fine after that. They come uh, get back up on their feet and they continue with their activities. But sometimes it becomes a real struggle. And in case someone doesn't know like what's going on with them, they probably would look at the symptoms and say, oh, no, call 911. And the child has to go for, you know, seeing a doctor at the emergency. So, Wow. So you're saying that it can happen a few seconds to several minutes. Yes. Are there spasms in the throat? I mean, what's going on to make these vocal folds close? Yeah, that is something it draws back from our nervous system control sometimes you know we uh, okay if we have to just take a deep breath we do that it's kind of consciously done but sometimes when you're just breathing for life we are we are breathing just when you're engaged in some activity we hardly think what are, what is happening at the level of the larynx are we breathing really so our attention is not on that our attention is drawn away but what happens with this vcd like one of the theories says that that there's some problem with the timing aspect of the vocal folds. Mm -hmm. So the vocal folds get into some spasm because a higher order neuro neurological center is not sending appropriate signals down to the vocal folds mm. to maintain that timing. 
inspiration timing and expiration timing. See, the problem is that in uh, BCD, there's nothing wrong with the expiration phase because when you look at expiration, they're just normal. They can breathe out easily with no restriction whatsoever. Mm. But the moment they want to breathe in, that's where the struggle begins. And that's because of the nervous, faulty nervous system input, also faulty timing of the vocal fold muscles, because the muscles are supposed to do their work for inspiration. And the muscles we use for inspiration are the posterior cricoarytenoid muscle. That's the only muscle. I would say that's a breathing muscle because that is in the larynx. It's only used for abducting the vocal folds for breathing purposes. Ah, that's the culprit. Yeah. You know, I remember working with a child whose upper chest area was all was very tight all the time. And his voice was tight. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you know, if there was maybe a little bit of this, I mean, mm -hmm. during the episodes, you're obviously going to see a child that's in distress um, and having difficulty breathing and so on. Is there a precursor? I mean, or is there something, is there a low grade tension that goes on prior? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that surrounds it before and after as far as symptoms that we could pick up on? Oh, yeah, that is a great question, actually. Sometimes it just happens because I, and a child doesn't even know that it's going to happen. But sometimes you feel like just before some very highly stressful activities, for example, the child has to go to a competition or the child has to do a race. And all of a sudden, if there's too much anxiety in the system, it triggers your autonomic nervous system in such a way that it gets some wrong signals to your vocal folds. And uh, sometimes you never notice that things are happening. But yes, you brought up the chest tightness. Now, chest tightness, I would say that is mostly with asthma. Children with asthma would say, oh, yeah, my chest feels really tight. It's heavy, can't breathe out very well. But uh, the children who show a BCD episodes, they actually would touch their throat area and say, oh, I am having tightness here. Now, that, is, that happens without their awareness. They're not aware of that. Uh, but they just ha ha happen to take their hands and put it on their neck and uh, probably anterior, you know, throat area. And they say, just hurting in the front, like, you know, just, and they will just mm. uh, hold their neck and hold their um, throat and say, it's kind of tight everywhere. So that's a tightness. It comes from those muscle spasms, of course, and um, because and that episode, how long ever it lasts, it just continues to build up on those symptoms. And finally, when it relaxes, the child thinks, yes, the child is able to breathe again, and mm. they realize that it had been a horrible episode yes. where they were not able to breathe well, and that even heightens their anxiety. Oh, Yes. I, I mean, I'd be scared to do a race or I'd be scared to get into my competition, whether it's, you know, music or whatever. Mm -hmm. Wow. So before we continue on with the causes, now you have seen people and kids and so on that have VCD. You've seen the episodes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you describe maybe one or two of these kids and what you have seen and what they have gone through? Okay, that I could just start with a six-year-old uh, little girl who came to our clinic because 
um, okay, sorry, I think she was seven years old when she came to our clinic. And for the past one year, the mom described that she was having intense problem breathing, especially when she would go to the field to play some games uh, with her classmates. And she had this great anxiety. And the mom never knew where this came from because she felt that everyone else in the family was pretty uh, relaxed and laid back. But then she was having some sort of anxiety-based symptoms during her tasks, and no one realized that that could be a possible cause of her breathlessness. But anyway, there were two or three episodes the mom noticed, and uh, after a year, I think, she came to her clinic, and those episodes had increased. And she came to know that she could just go to any university clinic and see a speech pathologist. And um, I don't think they got any help at the school because they thought that it was something it, that came and went and nothing mm -hmm. persisted. So she did not receive any services from the school mm. speech pathologist. So she came to us mm -hmm. and uh, the mom, yeah, she expressed that um, her daughter was having problem with breathing and she would cough so hard that everyone in the soccer field or any other playground area would uh, just make them look at her and it used to draw lots of attention from other people because she would cough and cough and cough and will not stop yeah until the time she felt that she was able to breathe now isn't that like something that tells us like why would she start coughing and then stop and when she would cough it used to be really really loud cough that's what the mom explained mm -hmm. now when she came to her clinic we actually did some testing on her just try to do some uh, test of breathing to see like if she showed some sort of breathlessness anytime we made her read and she was a very good reader i remember so she was able to read for us and we're thinking like oh my gosh could he see some episode happening we actually tried to scope her we did video endoscopy we took the scope uh, through her mouth we couldn't do the nasal scope because there's some restrictions in using um, the scope because we had an adult scope and not a pediatric mm, scope right. so with that uh, rigid scope we saw her larynx was just normal. She had a beautiful vocal folds, all hydrated, and she looked like she was good taking care of things, and there, was, there were no allergies, and um, everything seemed to be fine in terms of coloration. There were no infection. The mucosa looked good. Then what is wrong? So we couldn't see anything. Now, when the symptoms of BCD happen, we really cannot capture that. Sometimes we are not there when the symptoms happen. Mm -hmm. And then when the when the person is going through that episode, we have to stick our endoscope to see like what's going on with the vocal folds. But that is not possible. No. So we just thought, well, based on the symptoms. And now that's the tricky thing that we want to rule out everything in order to rule in BCD. So we right. thought, do you have asthma? Do you have any uh, medications that you take? And they go, no, no, no. I feel, okay, so this happened. So we were thinking that this is by isolation, that could be only BCD. Now, I would like to explain a little bit more about that. She did complain some tightness of her chest, which is typically a symptom of asthma, mm -hmm. but she didn't mention anything about her throat. I told, okay, that doesn't match very well. But she, yeah, she had some audible strider, like mom explained that she would breathe sometimes very heavily and will make sound um, because she's just trying to cope with her breathlessness sometimes. Suppose she's running and she has to catch up her breath. So we actually tried to simulate the situation. We told her, okay, let's run. Let's just get into the treadmill and I will see like if you get the symptoms. Ah. So she did. After about seven minutes of running, 
she could not maintain her breath support. Really? I thought, okay, is, was the episode indeed coming? And uh, it didn't come. But she overcame the thing and it just happened that she was, you know, just back to her normal self and said, well, I'm just very much relaxing and let me know what I need to do next. So that was, those were her words. Hmm. So we said, well, all right, let's do some more. We gave her more tasks. Right. <laughs> she did not have any episode uh, during that evaluation, but she went through therapy. We had just, uh, I'll get to that later on. So some of the therapy, therapeutic aspects really, really work very well with children having BCD or BCD-like symptoms and they get benefited yes. from Yes. Interesting. So you couldn't initiate an episode, is what you're saying. No. Isn't that, isn't <laughs> that <yeah>, poor kid? <laughs> oh my gosh. And she was seven. Yes. And she knew probably what was going on. I mean, what was her description of it? Did she, did you ask her, you know, tell me what happens? Yes. What did she say? Absolutely. When he told her what happened, she just mentioned, I think I have trouble breathing. That's what she said. And she pointed to her upper chest, like especially where you have the breastbone or the sternum, that area right below our neck. So she just pointed there and said, oh, I I think I have some tightness over there and it feels funny. And I don't know what Hmm. it is, but uh, she mentioned that she didn't uh, touch her throat or especially, you know, children with those episodes, they usually point to their Uh, throat but that was something off but then she presented with some hoarse voice probably she was coughing a lot and you know when you cough a lot your laryngeal mucosa go through some strain and uh, stress Mm -hmm. and as a result you might develop some mild hoarse voice and that's something we find in the literature as well that children at vcd if they're having some coping mechanism especially coughing uh, then they might end up having some sort of raspy voice so she, she did have some of it, but not quite obvious, but uh, we could, we did the testing. We did some acoustic voice evaluation with, based on the numbers. If and that, yeah, she's slightly off, but not so bad that perceptually we had to tell her, oh, no, your voice is really not that good. But anyway, she um, also told us that she had trouble sleeping because she'd be having some anxiety in the sense she couldn't uh, go back to sleep after waking up. And which we felt that that's not probably within our territory. We thought it would be something the physician could uh, consult with her. She she did explain about that. And then she also mentioned one thing. She felt that she, when she ate food, she felt something funny going on in her throat. And I said, well, is that something called reflux? She didn't know the term, but her mom said that she had some digestion problems. And we thought, oh, probably there's some link over there, like why she was getting those episodes. And, you know, as if a child has acid reflux that has not been treated for some time, their laryngeal mucosa, they get those refluxes, like the things that come out of the stomach, they touch the vocal folds. And sometimes that happens at night without the knowledge of the child or the parents. Mm -hmm. And the next morning they wake up, you know, having a weird taste in their mouth and they might feel like a little bit, um, in a sense, uh, like restless because uh, it's not just the greatest feeling when you wake up and probably they could have lost some sleep at night. So they end up waking up having some sort of fatigue. Mm -hmm. So cheap mentioned all of these symptoms and she uh, didn't say that I'm anxious or something a child can say but she said I'm just worried about getting a rank I'm worried about this race 
I don't know if I can do it, but I feel like I can breathe very well. So that's what she mentioned as a symptom. How long had this been going on? I mean, how early does this start? Yes. She actually got this, our mom noticed all these symptoms when she was six. So it took them a year to figure out like what they should do. So she would cough and they felt that, oh, probably it is allergies. And they took her to her physician, her pediatrician, who said that, well, uh, they ruled out asthma, that she didn't have any asthma. So she didn't get any care after that, but her um, symptoms continued for a year. And then the mom found out that she could bring her to our university clinic. And I was the person many years ago to see her. And my entire class with my boy students, they were so excited. Each one of them (laughs) did something for her, like a little activity, you know, for therapy. And uh, we just had a ball, like I would say, (laughs) just having her in class for a little time and, and giving her the treatment. But um, I, if at all I can mention this here, like she totally outgrew that problem. And when you followed up, her mom said she never, ever coughed any time <laughs> at the soccer field. Or probably she just got her anxiety level down. And with all the therapy exercises, she was made more aware of herself. And uh, since then, you know, we knew that she was doing fine and we didn't have to do any follow-up because the condition was that she would come for follow-up if at any time the mom or she felt that they have some symptoms of the noted something very different. This causal piece, I mean, I'm hearing that perhaps stress in a person's life, yeah, emotional stress, mm-hmm. and then I'm also hearing physical stress, mm-hmm. you know, like out on the field and, and running and so on. Um, maybe even something in the atmosphere, you know, smoke or something. I mean, I don't know. So is there definitely a trigger that happens or does it just happen due to a neurological glitch? I mean, or is it a combination of both or do we know? Yeah, theoretically, yes. There's some neurological things going on. Otherwise, why would a person have this spasm? So the spasm part is explained at the neurological level, but there are some triggers, definitely. So we have theories, we have causes, we have triggers. Now, we do not have enough evidence to suggest that one of the causes should have strong correlation with the symptom or a sign or anything. But it's good to explore everything to see what might be the cause and what are the triggers. And knowing those causes and triggers, I think we get better with the line of treatment. So as you ask, like what are other causes, I would say something like allergic rhinitis or some um, inflammation going on in the oral or nasal or pharyngeal mucosa. There could be something like um, if the child is on some medications, it could be a reaction coming from that medication. So literature supports that type. So your respiration rhythm could possibly change uh, without your knowledge. So this is kind of scary things. And then they also suggest, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like having some sort of neurological underpinning. So we're not sure about that, but just at the theoretical level, we have some explanation there. But some other causes would be laryngeal reflux. Like we call it actually laryngopharyngeal reflux called LPR. So Hmm. you may not get any heartburn, but in case you have food, 
and if you have some reflux conditions, it just makes you feel uncomfortable because mostly at night, the food particles or whatever is in our esophagus comes up to the pharynx and then from there it quickly goes to the larynx, touches the vocal folds and then they go back down. And, we, and no one ever knows how that happens and if there are any symptoms. Mm. It just is a silent reflux. That's what I call it. Interesting. And then we have another cause like GERD in case a child has some gastrointestinal problems and they have gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is GERD. Mm -hmm. Then it's quite possible that the GERD triggers something in the diaphragm and the diaphragm triggers something to the and maybe there's some communication to the muscles in our larynx, and probably that just disrupts the rhythm of respiration. Wow. So there are some theories that actually relate to those causes. But when you look at triggers, oh, yes, there are some literature that says triggers could be anything in the environment like pollen, other pollutants, and something um, in the air, like if there's some abnormal um, composition. And sometimes we see air, which is kind of slightly depleted of oxygen, you just can get those triggers. So it could be just anything in the air that you're not used to. It could be just a simple perfume or ah. maybe smell of food. So those could be triggers as well. Interesting. Because I know sometimes certain perfumes or different odors um, in, in my own life, yes. I get like a little allergic reaction or something. I don't know. I think things start swelling and, and nasally or, you know, that there's mm -hmm. an allergic reaction. So maybe what you're saying is that all of that, many of these triggers are triggering that person's response. Like when I smell something that doesn't agree with me, then my system reacts in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So their system is reacting in a certain way. There is a propensity to have that um, laryngeal response. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense here? Yeah, absolutely. You are just doing great. Yes. Okay. So it is pretty much individualized. Like, you know, maybe I am, my system may not be triggered by a scent that could possibly trigger someone else's system. And what it does, it's, a, it's an allergic reaction that leads to some sort of breathing problems. And finally, there's some short, there could be some shortness of breath and breathlessness. You can call it anyway, like dyspnea, or shortness of breath or breathlessness. But one another important thing that I forgot to mention, it could be exercise induced as well. So the BCD symptoms may not be there, but suddenly you start swimming or suddenly you think, okay, let me just take a walk or brisk walk or just me run. So you get to see those symptoms appearing. So it's kind of tricky like when it happens and when it doesn't happen, but when it happens, you have to know like how to cope with that. Do these people get dizzy? I mean, is there actual oxygen deprivation? Yes, there's some oxygen deprivation. So that one could be confirmed by a pulmonologist who actually does uh, testing for inspiration and expiration. It says that during their inspiration, because their vocal folds are not fully open, so they can get the right amount of air inside. So their oxygen um, input is lower than during other times when they don't have the episode. And the expiration shows perfect. Yeah. It's perfectly all right. So it's just the inspiration part, which is, like a little bit low and it shows there are some graphs and loops that are um, used 
to just see those um, test results and they can explain that their inspiratory loop is kind of, uh, I would say, smaller in terms of surface area. So if you have a larger loop, that means you have more space for oxygen. And then when the loop is smaller, that indicates your inspiration is not adequate or up to par. But let's stay on causes for just a few more minutes here. Yeah, sure. Okay. You know, there are some kids that are very athletic. Mm -hmm. So are we saying that every time they go out and run a relay or whatever, that this is going to happen? Or is it just cyclic? Or maybe this happens with most kids, um, you know, once a week or maybe once every other week. I mean, what's the frequency or can you predict or are these triggers pretty consistent? Do you get these breathing responses every time this trigger happens or is it just sporadic? I think I I will pick up on the word sporadic. So we really cannot predict anything. Sometimes kids, there are so many kids I see, they're working hard, playing games, and they're really pushing hard to get to the level where they want to play at. But I don't think all the kids go through that. But some studies on on, um, little uh, children from their age range, let me see, seven or eight to all the way to 14, um, they're number of studies, I would say, uh, that have been performed for that particular age group, they felt that only 14% to 16% of children um, were actually demonstrating some signs of VCD. And other children who had some signs, some discomfort, they ended up having some diagnosis of asthma. So it's interesting to note that we do have great athletes, but they have asthma. And sometimes you do have VCD in isolation, like there's nothing else but only VCD. And sometimes you see coexistence of VCD with asthma, and those are really tricky (laughs) children. That's awful. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So exercise induced VCD. It's easier to diagnose though because you can hear the strider, the rest, the noisy breathing very clearly. It's difficulty with the inspiratory phase only. And then they have throat tightening or sometimes chest tightening. And sometimes they would say that um, they are feeling a little bit uncomfortable during the whole thing. And uh, if they know, then they will just wait it out. It's no problem. They'll just lie down and they'll make sure that they they have enough oxygen to breathe because they can't merely uh, have that uh, standing posture. So they are um, actually, in a sense, it is better for them to just rest or lie down and so that they can just get the oxygen they need. Yeah. And sometimes the onset is very abrupt, like you never know it's going to come to you. Yeah. And there is a nice and quick resolution. So there should be no problem with that. Does lying down, does that impact the vocal folds at all? Or does it just make them relax or maybe lessen the possibility of them falling over because they're dizzy or all of the above? <laughs> yeah, I think the lying down posture just makes them aware that they are going through these symptoms. And if they are dizzy somehow, you could actually, you're actually predicting that they, if they fall, that could be more dangerous. And if they're just lying down and having some rest and recovery position, they should be up on their feet in no time. All right. So going back to that other question. So it is sporadic. Yeah. And it's not like the trigger triggers a response, a VCD response every time. It's just sporadic. You don't know. Yes. 
Okay. That's kind of scary in itself, actually. Yeah, it is. Because sometimes, you know, we try to simulate that. I said, well, if smell triggers some BCD, there was an adult client. I want to talk about in this presentation about adult client, but I'm just saying, if you would like to see like, what is a scenario like? We tested that client in a clinic and we just uh, gave him several different things to you know, just smell, including bleach. Gosh, and he said that every time he used to clean his bathroom or something, he'd get into an episode, and that's why he stopped cleaning his bathroom. <laughs> we gave him all these chemicals, and he had no problem. I said, okay. Interesting. Ah, that is difficult yeah. to just kind of <laughs> see like what the literature says and what he complained of, and we couldn't elicit that. So that means it is, yes, I would say anecdotally and also based on the literature support, we could say that, yes, these symptoms are pretty much sporadic. Okay, so let's go to the incidence and prevalence here. You mentioned something about 14 to 16% of, what were they? Yeah, probably seven to 14 years of age, like, if, yeah. And the study that was done on more than a um, couple of hundred children, I don't have the study here, but, um, Though that study particularly tried to look into the symptoms of BCD and come up with a prevalence and incidence figure, but that's not available, like the exact BCD incidence and prevalence, because it's so tricky. There's so many, um, in a sense, factors and variables to look into. So the studies are pretty much limited. Now, reiterating that um, study, I would say BCD was only a small percentage, but more than BCD, the, ch the children had asthma, and then a small percentage had BCD and asthma together. Mm -hmm. So so that uh, actually asthma is kind of predictable. You know, it is you can actually see someone struggling with asthma, signs and symptoms. They get their medications. If they continue to have the medications on time, they pretty much can get better. Mm -hmm. But with BCD, there's no, there are no medications as such. So you have to kind of use other techniques and um, I know use some knowledge to make sure that you are out of that episode quickly. So I'm hearing maybe, you know, teenagers have this. Mm -hmm. Do adults as well or does it manifest in fewer adults? Oh, well, for adults, the BCD manifestation is little different because um, there are small neurological conditions that come into play and I'm not saying that there are no psychological issues like anxiety depression or stress from life yes those are symptoms and I have treated more than I would say 15 to 20 I can't remember Ooh. so those are all adults really? that had BCD <laughs> I can't imagine all of a sudden probably there was awareness all over i guess people recognize the symptoms and from time to time i saw all of these adults with bcd some of them had some problems like they would have blepharospasm you know where their eyelids what? could close on them oh there were some spasms and they because of they had blepharospasms like eyelid spasms they had laryngeal spasms and their complaint was that they would just uh, address something at a table for 12 people and they're trying to project their voice. All of a sudden they have breathlessness wow. and they can't continue. So that's another thing I learned. Like, you know, when you learn a lot in the clinical field, I guess I don't get to learn as much about <laughs> just reading. <laughs> it is always true that we interact with our clients. So they just opened my eyes to it and what oh, is yes. what was going on. Sure. And 
some of them had stroke so we don't know if there's some neurological yeah. underpinning there as well and uh, they were otherwise you know great communicators but they were not able to get out of the bcd conditions because every time something new would come up and uh, there's one website um i think it's called can't breathe suspectbcd.com that has listed probably a, over a hundred triggers so since you were mentioning about triggers and sometimes you never know if you ruled out like probably uh, 20 or 30 triggers and there's one other one you didn't talk about and that person gets exposed to that and gets into that episode what was that website again can't breathe what can't breathe suspect it, it, actually, that website came from National Barnes Jewish Hospital. Oh. Well, there was a nurse who had BCD symptoms, and I did not visit the website recently, but it has a wealth of information on BCD. It's called Can't Breathe, suspectbcd.com. You know, somehow I just thought that you grow out of this, but yes. not really, huh? I mean, a lot of people don't. So the adults that you worked with, had they had this for long term, or maybe they had it as a child and then it left and it came back, or maybe it just started as an adult? Actually, they couldn't. That's a very interesting question. They couldn't tell us like whether they had episodes like this when they were younger. So I think when they were adult, they noticed the problems they're having. They were having problems with breathing, and fifty percent of them, if I have a good estimate. They all said that one at one point or the other, they were in ER waiting for the physician to evaluate them and say they're okay to go home without my, any other treatment. Yeah, the episode stopped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, so mm -hmm. move me into therapy. And you know, I imagine that speech-language pathologists are involved in this, and maybe we help them to relax or something, but what do we do? Well, uh, when we say treatment the first and foremost thing is to see like what is causing the problem yes well the answer is very difficult because there's so many causes we really don't have enough evidence to say well this cause probably correlates with this symptom and so on but if we find a cause it's great but sometimes it's very difficult to evaluate that so we just try to see like what are some of the environmental substances or environmental pollutants or allergens that the child has hypersensitivity to. So that if those are the triggers, it, of course, yes, they are under the category of triggers, we just try to find out, could we possibly reduce those triggers? If the child cannot tolerate humidity, maybe you should reduce that. If the air is too dry, maybe you could do something about that. If the child has allergies, can we, could he possibly ask the physician or the pediatrician to provide the medications? Yes. If the child has reflux, did we, are we doing anything about that? Did we take care of the child? Did we talk to the parents? Did we talk about do's and don'ts? So those are the things to kind of consider. And thereafter, get down to the larynx because that's the major point where all these problems are um, actually sourcing. From. Yes. So we look at the tension in the laryngeal area, like how do you do that? We have to kind of see to it that they're not overtly showing some sort of tightness. When you, if I say, take a deep breath and kind of say, ah, it's good. If I take a deep breath and say, ah, that's not good. So that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So there's some tension 
Yeah, so we need to make sure the child is not putting undue tension in the laryngeal area. It should be relaxed. And so we try to take them through the journey of tightness in the muscles and relaxed muscles. So we educate them. That's the main part. So we try to know more about them, their environment, their habits, food, and everything. And then we try to see like, what exactly is uh, the tension? Is it in the laryngeal area? And then we ask them, so how are you breathing? So if anything has to be done to just change their respiration pattern, are they like kind of using an altered breath? Um, our breathing mechanism, for example, if they're using a lot of shoulder movement, a lot of neck tightness, or if they're using their upper chest alone to breathe, I would say, yeah, that's kind of not really conducive to uh, a solid posture for breathing or some prolonged, I would, I would say, uh, intake of oxygen. So really, they cannot do all those if the breathing pattern is not normal. So all of us know that already, that we need to establish some sort of stable breathing pattern so that there's enough oxygen in the system and also when the oxygen goes out of the system we are in full command of that airflow so especially when speech pathologists are working on speech sounds or they are working on voice they have to make sure the exhalation part is not ignored so we do want the inhalation part to be taken care of but sometimes you know we have to also understand that we're using the same muscles for inhalation and exhalation at some point because it's not always isolated action so we are using our inspiration for inspiration we're using our muscles like external intercostal muscles so yes those muscles are for inspiration only but they are also used during expiration because you are having some sort of checking action on them. So we should not, we should not, or in a sense, we do not want to hyperventilate or we don't want to use too much force on the muscles. We want to just have optimum flow of air and optimum flow of air out. So taking a look at all the muscles and taking a look at the diaphragm, all speech pathologists kind of understand it's so important to establish some diaphragmatic breathing. So yes, for treating BCD, we do use the term abdominal breathing because that's more conducive to what happens. Instead of just focusing on the diaphragm, I think we focus on many muscles that actually give us a good posture to breathe. So that's why we call it abdominal breathing. Mm -hmm. And if we are able to stabilize that abdominal breathing pattern, that means to say we are strengthening the entire system to deal with those BCD-like episodes, if at all they are there. So what do we do? What do we teach our you know clients? So what do we, how do you work? Right. Now for um, respiration, we could actually have lots of different activities like a simple activity I have done for those kids. It's like giving them a cup of water and a straw. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. straws. Okay. <laughs> I give them a straw and a cup of water and say, hey, could you please take a deep breath and continue to blow through the straw into the water and uh, see how long you can sustain that breath. Now that is relaxing the system a whole lot. So they take the cup of water with water and I make sure it is not overfilled or something. It's just up to 50% mark. If it is filled, then now, uh, those kids can just blow water through the straw and maintain their breath support. And I tell them, you know what? If you could just maintain a steady flow of air, not too 
turbulent and not too low. So you mm-hmm. just do the right one. And I always uh, try to get another cup for myself and explain them. So that actually makes them stabilize their abdomen in a very different way. Huh. So they, yeah, they continue with that for 15 seconds. You know, who gets 15 seconds of breath out? So, and then, then also we talk about deep, you know, breath in, so inspiration. So that helps a lot. And we also do something to stabilize their abdominal breath support by using some speech because all the time you cannot breathe like for 30 minutes or 50 minutes. We use some exercises for voice. For example, I might say, take a deep breath and say, ah, which all of us know that we do the phonation duration part and see if the child has the optimum number of seconds for phonation depending on their age. So for a seven-year-old, for a 10-year-old, I'll have different uh, values that I would just ask them to attain. So um, sometimes I ask them to read some materials. If they are good at reading and they're okay with it, I'll say, okay, you are only going to pause at certain times, but don't, if you feel like you're struggling to take a deep breath or you feel like pausing, do so, but realize that we are going to go over that phrase completely and then take a breath. Or if there is a period, we take a short, quick, deep breath. So the reading materials were, uh, that I used earlier were very helpful. And then sometimes if we really didn't feel like reading something, I would say, hey, you know what? We can do some counting. So let's do this. It's called words per breath. So we would do, uh, let's say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, probably you realize that I did not take any breath in between. Mm-hmm. I went all the way until eight and stopped. So uh, <laughs> so that kind of helps them to stabilize their breath support a little bit more in a fun way. So we play with numbers, letters, names. And uh, okay, well, we are, if you have like two long words, then we cannot probably do it. We have to make sure that word length is all maintained. But that's something you could do. And then uh, it is interesting, like we need to tell them beyond these breathing exercises what they could possibly do when they have an episode right that's what i was thinking too is that you know somehow we need to get this child through it knowing that they have some level of control as they're in it so that that does take away some of the stress yes and that is a great question and indicator. I was going to get to that. Oh, yes. good. It's the breathing recovery exercises, or you can call them rescue breathing. Ah, so what is the rescue breathing? Okay. So whenever they feel that they're having some tightness and they're about to get into that episode, yeah. so with proper education about the entire thing, I think I was so, so successful in just telling the seven-year-old girl, say, hey, if you ever find out that you're getting some breathlessness, please do this. Now, what I train them is what is there in the literature. Of course, we follow evidence-based practice. So something that really helps is to make sure we do relaxed throat breathing. That means to say we have to relax the back of the throat so that um, all of those tissues and all, they have enough space to hold that oxygen and the air. And to do so, we have to make some constriction in, the, in our mouth, like at the level of the lips. So that's what it makes uh, the difference is that we're able to relax our airway if we have some constriction at the level of the lips. So that's called the semi-occluded vocal tract. So that's what the name is, but um, that's a concept. But again, if you're just doing the breathing for rescue, we tell them, let's not worry about what is happening at the level of breathlessness. You'll be just fine. 
So what you need to do is just to take deep breaths as usual. You don't have to pant or get anxious about it. Naturally, normally take some deep breaths. And when you release the breath, you just take your tongue slightly out in between your teeth okay. and just relax and say, like a sa sound. Uh -huh. So when you're doing the sa sound and continually doing that, you're actually increasing the dimensions uh, and the area in your pharyngeal level. So you're able to have some relaxed throat breathing. So the constriction in the, is in the front of the mouth. So some um, studies say that it's good to do the F sound. So it would be like taking a deep breath and saying, or taking a deep breath and saying, and that's what uh, we could do. And then sometimes when we treat these children, we ask them to be aware of their breath support. And uh, to do so, we tell them sometimes to take deep breaths through their nose as well. So nasal breathing is supposed to relax the larynx. So it's that kind of connection. So we try to pursue nasal breathing patterns. And that's what in yoga also we learn that sometimes we occlude one nostril and then take a deep breath through one of, one of the nostrils and then release the other one and use the alternate nostril for continuing to breathe. So that helps really, so nasal breathing, but in case they're having their mouth open, then we could say, oh, keep your mouth open and let's breathe. And sometimes we could also ask them to breathe through their nose when the episode is kind of under control. They don't have to really panic. So it's a whole lot of education, I would say. And the breathing recovery exercises help a lot in managing their behaviors. Like yeah. if they're too anxious or stressed out, that really calm, those exercises really calm them down. And they are, in a sense, they are cognizant of the fact that they should be okay in about a few minutes. It's just a matter of a few minutes. So doing the TH type of thing where the tongue moves forward, that one seems logical to me to sort of move the tongue and, and the muscles out of the area of the pharynx. I mean, yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. Our time is very uh, short here, but I want to ask you, when the jaw is open, are we helping or hindering the laryngeal area? Yeah, that is a very good question. So uh, some theories suggest that the jaw is open. We are kind of uh, inducing more anxiety because they try to pant a whole lot and try to think that they're going to get a whole lot of air through their mouth. But the main problem here is that if we constrict at one point, the vocal tract relaxes in the other end. Mm -hmm. So that semi-occlusion, that concept comes from the point that when we want to relax our laryngeal muscles, we have to have some tension in the lips and draw our attention away from the throat area and try to do something with the lips. So engaging the lips during that episode, it makes a big difference. So it's kind of a little sensory trick. So I know that I'm not able to breathe. I know, understand that I'm having struggle, but I still don't want to follow that pattern. I want to do something else to just get my nervous system to do something different for myself. So Interesting. Yeah, it's in the neurology literature that talk about sensory tricks and probably those are the ones. And, and I have known that a few uh, children, then uh, actually they were noted to have some coughing behaviors. They would just cough and not do anything else just because probably no one 
told them how to do abdominal breathing and get out of the episode by using pursed lip breathing or like uh, saying a sound and making it continuous. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they just cough and uh, they make sure that vocal folds are open because after that violent cough, what happens, the vocal folds suddenly open, abduct to get in more air because coughing induces some strong adduction uh, that are closing at the level of the vocal folds. So different children have different strategies, probably some self-strategies. And then when they're given all this education and counseling and some right techniques to reduce this tension, and also like they receive some sort of education about their lifestyle or some exposure to some environmental factors, they, everything kind of works together to make sure the child understands the process of treatment and also the triggers and the BCD as a whole. Yes. So the concept is so important for them to realize. And this is what the speech pathologists do. And it doesn't take very many sessions to actually treat a child. So on an average, I would say probably seven to 10 sessions if you're trying to work with a younger child and establishing time to establish the breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. But for adults, it's one or two or three sessions. They get you know all the information. They're good to go and they're on their way and always try to do their management, like self-management of symptoms. And um, for children, yeah, parents do monitor their symptoms and from time to time remind them to actually oh, yeah. Um, yeah, get to those exercises. And um, I think there's some dosage that the literature suggests. If you are into those breathing exercises, probably it makes a big difference if you're able to do at least three sets during the day. Mm-hmm. So that helps a lot just to make sure your respiratory system is tuned in to the needs or demands that you go through every day in life. You are a wealth of knowledge. I have a feeling that we have an expert here in this VCD area. I mean, you are amazing with all of your knowledge in this area. And you've worked with a lot of people in this area too. So now if someone out there has a question, are you open to them emailing you? Yes, please. If someone has a question or someone has a a client who they're trying to treat and I would be more than happy to get connected and I, uh, they can call me or they can email me. So Okay. Uh, your email is J-R-A-Y, J-Ray at S-E-M-O dot E-D-U. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. This has been amazingly interesting. Thank you so much, Jayanti. Thank you again for this great opportunity. I truly enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.